If you'd open up in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, I'll be reading verses 13 through 16. Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out. They would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. It's living and active and effectual nature to pierce between our bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and into the depths of our hearts. Lord, we ask that it would do its work now by the power of your spirit, convicting us of sin, but encouraging us in faith, a faith that looks forward with hope to the coming of Christ our King and the better country that he brings with him. Father, be with us now and draw us near to Christ. Help us in worship and in love, to respond rightly to what we hear. And may it have an impact upon our lives, not just now, but on into eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews over the last uh, year or so. And and in this last month, we've slowed down quite a bit here in in chapter 11. This, This marvelous chapter recounting for us the great heroes of faith seen throughout the Old Testament. We've been meandering at a slow and steady pace through this hallway, looking at each picture on the wall, inspecting with great interest all the details of men like Abel and his life, looking at the stunning brushstrokes of faith seen in Enoch, studying with wonder the life of Noah, and most recently looking at the largest portrait in the hallway, the life and faithfulness of Abraham. We saw last week how Abraham's faith was an unhesitating faith, an obedience and a a trusting faith, how Abraham was missional in his faith, and how his faith was not only empowering, but also death-defying. And we noted that Abraham's faith was a faith that looked to Christ, that it was the same gospel preached to us that was also given to Abraham, and that, that the author of Hebrews is encouraging his hearers to not give up and, and to not turn back, to not make a return to the safety of Judaism where they can worship God without persecution. No, he wants to encourage them to keep going in faith precisely because the great heroes of Judaism itself were men and women who were looking forward to Jesus Christ. That's the conclusion of chapter 11, isn't it? where the author tells us in chapter 12, verse 1, that since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, men and women like Abraham and Sarah, Moses and Rahab, the great heroes of the faith, well, he says, let us also look 
to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's what our text is doing for us this morning so clearly. It's a kind of break in the hallway with a sign reminding us what we're seeing, what we're looking at. We're looking at these awesome pictures of men and women who have been lionized for their faith. But the sign here is warning us. It's saying, don't be excited about the pictures themselves. They're beautiful, yes. But this hallway of chapter 11 isn't set up for you to cast your eyes backwards in history and get excited at at who Abraham was or who Noah was. The sign is telling us, look at their eyes. The artist was intentional behind every one of these pictures, and he's, he's painted them with the focal point being on their eyes. Where are their eyes looking in every picture? And then you notice, oh, of course, they're all looking in the same direction. They're all looking forward to something better. The point is their faith, their forward-looking faith. All their eyes are oriented towards the future. Do you see that in verse 13? These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Look at verse 14. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking, looking forward to a homeland. Even there in verse 16, right? But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. So as you go through this hallway, stooping to look at every inch of the paintings, you notice, oh, step back, their eyes, and each picture has some component of looking ahead, and and these lives are being portrayed here. Well, they're lives that were lived with an eternal perspective. I can't help but think of the early American preacher and theologian Jonathan Edwards who, who prayed, oh God, may you stamp eternity upon my eyeballs, so that the result was that all of life, a life lived by faith, would be a life lived with an eternal, heavenly perspective. You know what I think is and so encouraging about every one of these portraits we've seen? They're realistic. They're not impressionist paintings only giving us a kind of glamorized or beautified version of reality. No scripture adheres to the realist school of thought. All the portraits are painted as Oliver Cromwell famously asked to be painted with warts and all. And that should be so encouraging to us this morning. Because you could very easily walk through chapter 11 and leave more discouraged than encouraged, couldn't you? I mean, you're asking me to live by faith by setting up Abraham as my example? By bringing out Moses? I was barely able to get out of bed this morning because of all the weight of guilt that's been weighing on me from all the unfaithful and cowardly and just outright sinful things I've done this week. And you want me to look at Moses, the guy who led a nation of slaves out of Egypt, stood up to the most powerful man and the most powerful military in the world at the time. You want me to consider Abraham, who was able to live in tents for the remainder of his life as a missionary in a foreign land, faithfully trusting God. But that's not what the author's doing here, is he? He's bringing up Abraham, who not once, but twice, failed to stand up to men who wanted his wife. And twice he let her be taken away to who knows where to have who knows what happen behind closed doors. That's the man being presented here as faithful. Hebrews 11 is full of examples of men and women who had failed God badly, spectacularly, 
but who had found forgiveness, real restoration. And perhaps that's something many of us really need to hear this morning. That our sins, no matter how egregious, vile, dark, or devastating, need never have the last word in your life. Because where sin abounds, right, grace abounds that much more. No matter how great your sin is, for those who have real faith, grace is greater still. And isn't that how this passage begins? These all died in faith. Cowardly Abraham, lying Jacob, conniving Sarah, who suggested and planned for her husband to sleep with another woman in order to have a child. And then she got mad at that woman. Their sins didn't have the last word at the end of their lives. Faith did. They died in faith. And so as we examine these portraits and and we see the reality of their lives, warts and all, well, this passage, I think, is reminding us to look back at their eyes. And there, we see them looking to something better, to someone better. Our eyes look forward with them. So what's the main point of this little paragraph? I think it's this. Faith isn't consumed with or satisfied with the here and now, but seeks and desires a better future promise. Faith lives by an eternal perspective. I think we see that set up for us right there in verse 13, where the author tells us that these all died in faith. In the Greek, it actually says that these all died according to faith. He doesn't use the word in. He uses kata, which means according to. So I think that that we're meant to read this verse this way, that, that these all died according to faith or in accordance with faith. These all died in keeping with what faith really looks like. And basically what follows is the author fleshing all this out. What does it mean to live and die according to faith? Before we unpack the passage, I want you quickly, though, to notice the very presupposition already inherent in verse 13. Do you see it? Having faith means dying in faith. Or in other words, having faith means that you will continue to have faith. And that you will, as the book of Hebrews has been arguing throughout, persevere in faithfulness up to the very end. Even though these patriarchs lived lives where they they stumbled constantly in sin. They nonetheless continued to return to the Lord in faithful hope, having faith that they'd really receive at the end what God promised. It is the truly faithful who keep getting up after they're continually knocked down. We're all sinners here. Not one of us have come here this morning with clean hands, but we repent and we keep going. Do you remember what Jesus said concerning forgiveness? Jesus taught that if your brother sins against you, you should go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And and if your brother listens to you and you repent, well, then you've gained your brother back. But then Peter asks, well, how often should I do this, Lord? I mean, how many times am I able to forgive somebody who just keeps on sinning? When does forgiveness just become enabling? And do you remember what Jesus answers? 70 times seven. In other words, without end, until the end. If he really repents, and he really keeps on repenting, then you should really keep on forgiving, because that's exactly what God does with us. Don't you find such encouragement in that? In this life now, marred as it is with the struggles, and and stained as it is with our failings and our sins, 
Faith holds on to that promise that there really is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Faith grasps a hold of the promise that says, there really is a time coming when I will sin no more and the Lord will accept me into his presence all because of what Jesus Christ has done. That's one of the greatest evidences of true faith, isn't it? That they were people who died believing, still clinging to the promises held out for them. Church history is pockmarked by the sad reality that so many people have turned away from the faith. They started out strong, but in the end, they, well, they just didn't persevere. Did they lose their faith? No, the Bible tells us plainly that they never really had faith to begin with. It may have looked like faith. Maybe they said the right words, went to the right conferences, maybe even, you know, uh, read the right books and, and went to the right churches where they heard the right gospel being preached but they left, and so it wasn't really faith. The Apostle John tells us that that those who have left the faith did so because they were never really of the faith in the first place. What Hebrews 11.13 is telling us is that these all died still having faith. They, they, They died doing what chapter 12, verse 2 tells us. They died looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Once their faith took a hold of Jesus... Jesus, who's the the perfecter of that faith, kept their eyes locked. He wouldn't let them go. Oh, but I want to look over here. No, keep looking at me. But what about this? No, keep looking at me. Seeing then, grading things of Jesus from far off. And so he also keeps our hearts focused on the promises to come, which, by the way, are all yes and amen in him, right? Right? By faith, Jesus enables us to live with this eternal perspective, stamping eternity upon our eyeballs, helping us to even die with our faith locked in on Jesus Christ. What we want to do with the remainder of our time is look at how this kind of faith works itself out in our lives. What does it mean to live and die according to faith? And I think the author is giving us basically three perspectives. How does this faith impact us presently? How does this faith impact our past? And how does this faith impact our future? Present, past, and future. We've already established, right, that that this whole passage is about faith looking toward the future. It's, It's describing faith as an embracing of life with an eternal heavenly perspective. But that actually has repercussions now, doesn't it? It's akin to what the Apostle John says in 1 John 3, 3, that by faith, we are God's children now. And what we're going to become in glory, well, that's not yet been seen. But John says, we know that when Jesus appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who looks forward with hope in him purifies himself now. There's a sanctifying effect on our lives now that comes with future-looking faith, hope in what's to come. So what effect does that have on us presently? Two things, according to verse 13. First, it understands that this life is not all there is. The best is yet to come. You see that? These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. 
Their forward-looking faith allowed them to remain faithful now, despite having never attained the promises. It gave them an honest assessment of this life, knowing that we're, we're not promised everything in this life. I quoted John MacArthur last week, so I might as well quote him again today. But John MacArthur makes the excellent point that only those people who are surely headed to hell can ever claim that this is our best life now. Now, for those who have an eternal perspective, this life dims in comparison. Do you know that hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, written by Helen Lamel, who later in life became blind, and she writes so beautifully, basing her hymn off of Hebrews 11 and 12, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Faith, which is forward-looking and heavenly hoping, affects us now by allowing us to get through the struggles of now, by allowing us to not seek the shiny attractions and distractions of this world. Faith, seeing and greeting God's promises from afar can help a man die content, not having received those things here. Secondly, this allows you to be in the world, but not of the world, right? The author tells us that while Abraham lived, he acknowledged, he confessed publicly that he was only but a stranger and an exile upon the earth. You can actually read that throughout Genesis 23, Genesis 29, later in Genesis 40, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their constant mantra was that we're only strangers, sojourners, and exiles here upon the earth. I had an extra two pages in my sermon about how even David later says the same thing, Uh, but I took that out. And if you want to know more about that, ask me later. <coughs> no, this land is its not our homeland, right? Uh, this, 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 this place is, is, is strange to us. We're, we're exiles and aliens in a foreign place. And that's true for all Christians. The world was once our home. But something happened, something changed. As Pastor Mike read for us earlier from Philippians 3, our our minds used to be set on earthly things, but now our citizenship is in heaven, and from there we await the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. So consider the question, where are you from? It's a common question, and we're asked it all the time. But consider that question from a heavenly perspective. Well, I I was born outside of San Francisco, But John 3 actually tells me that I've been born again from above. Uh, I'm from heaven. It would explain the Christian's restlessness with this home, wouldn't it? Home is where the, the heart is, and our hearts are not here, or at least it ought not to be. But sadly, to our shame, many of us have more of an aroma of this world than we do of the world to come. But what does people say about you when, when, when they've talked about talked with you, and they ask you where you're from, and and you awkwardly say, well, from heaven. Is there something otherworldly about you? Is it evident where your heart is, where where your treasures lie? Jesus tells us that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So ask yourself, what is it that you actually treasure? What do your thoughts wander to when no one's watching? What do you excitedly give your time to and your money to? 
Friend, a Christian is that person who lives life storing up treasures in heaven. His, his, his life is lived with an eternal perspective. And, and what verse 13 is telling us is that it shapes who we are now. We, we treasure the future to come. And so that changes us to be awkward in this world here. Are your interactions with people, your engagements and conversations done so from eternal perspective? In light of the, loo, uh, the news coming out from Hollywood uh, this past week concerning Harvey Weinstein and the sad reality that men like Harvey Weinstein are ubiquitous, uh, they're everywhere and all the time, and I don't think that should surprise us in this fallen world, but I do think that the only real answer to that kind of problem is this. Men, are your conversations with women flowing out of a heart fixated on eternity? That will have an impact on your words. Young single men who are here, is your interaction with that attractive young lady flowing from a heart concerned for her eternal life or more for your best life now? The Dow Jones is at a record high. Maybe some of you have got a little more money to play with now. Are you spending your money with eternity in mind? Are we redeeming our time in this evil age, using our time wisely as we approach the bar of eternity? Or are you doing whatever you want because, you know, you only live once. You see? Every aspect of our lives, if we're living it by faith, everything should have eternity in view. And that makes a difference in how we live now. And it'll cost you. We know that. Saying yes to what matters eternally has to mean saying no to things here. The rhythms and, and the logic of this world are not in harmony with the kingdom of heaven. We march to the beat of a distant country, a song and melody this world frankly doesn't enjoy. And that will cost you. There's going to have to be some kind of sacrifice. Well, secondly, how does this faith impact our past? We've seen how it impacts us presently. How does it impact our past? Two things. It won't allow you to turn back and go back to your past. And secondly... Neither will allow you to rest in the blessings of the past. Look at verses 14 and 15. For people who speak this way, right, calling themselves strangers and exiles, they make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Here the author points out that having faith means leaving what's behind and and seeking after what's ahead. Having a homeland was, as it is now, a very important part of a person's identity and their heritage. The question, where are you from, garners in many of us a sense of pride. And and what you answer communicates a lot about you, doesn't it? Visit anywhere overseas. And and when people learn you're from America, well, a a whole picture about who you are immediately begins to emerge. Or if, if, if you're living here, but but you're originally from Nigeria or, or Cameroon or your family's from the Philippines or, or, or you're from Jamaica. Oh, there's so much pride wrapped up in your homeland. Even for generations after where the kids were born here, they, they still often identify, don't they, with their parents' homeland? But for Abraham, his faith in God so identified him with the God of heaven that that became his homeland. There was no desire to go back unlike the unfaithfulness of Lot's wife who who couldn't help but turn back to get one last glimpse of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
The faithfulness of Abraham was fixated on the glories to come. He was seeking a better homeland, a heavenly one, and he had no desire to turn back. But I think this also motivated Abraham to live in such a way that, well, as verse 1 of chapter 11 puts it, his assurance was in things hoped for. His faithfulness wasn't necessarily motivated by by what God had already done for him, but rather, I think this is what Hebrews 11 is really driving at, his faithfulness in the here and now was motivated by all that God promised for him to come. I know that's not a distinction we talk about a whole lot, but it's important to bring up, especially in this context. The Bible rarely, if ever, motivates Christians to live faithful lives out of gratitude for past blessings. Unfortunately, Christians talk like that all the time, though. Uh, They say things, and you've heard this. God has done so much for you. Now, what will you do for him? It sounds good. Although say things, he gave up his very life for you. Won't you give your life for him? This appeal to gratitude as a way of motivating Christians is so common that it actually comes as a bit of a shock when it's pointed out that, well, the Bible never really does that. How many places in the Bible can you think of where gratitude and thankfulness is explicitly made the motive behind our moral behavior and our faithfulness? Think about it. Now, gratitude is good, absolutely. And it is the right and essential response any Christian should have to what God has done for him. If you're not grateful, if there's no gratitude, then you're more than likely not a Christian. But I think you'll search the Bible in vain for any explicit connections between thankfulness for the past and our faithfulness going forward. Now, what made Abraham to die well in faith, enduring to the end? was that he looked forward with anticipation and excitement at what was to come. He was seeking a better homeland. It was was a heavenly-focused faith which looked with excitement to the blessings contained there. And he embraced the promises of God seen there as more satisfying than anything here below and better than anything he'd experienced in the past. I want more. I want more. I'm going to live for that. Do you know the story of the great missionary Jim Elliott? Well, it's a good way to spend your Sunday afternoon looking him up. The age of 24, he left the States, traveled to Ecuador with the hopes of reaching the Hua'arani people, a tribe that was cut off from the modern world deep in the rainforests of Ecuador. In 1955, he and his crew finally made contact with them. Encouraged by a few friendly encounters, they planned to move into that region. They set up a camp in order to learn their language and to begin giving them the gospel. Their plans were preempted, though, by the arrival of a larger group of about 10 Huarani warriors who ki- killed Jim Elliot, who had just turned 28, leaving behind a wife and a new baby daughter. His journal was later recovered. And in reading it, you can, you, you can see his expressed views that serving Christ is more important and more satisfying than anything else life has to offer. And in one journal entry specifically, he wrote what is now a widely known quote of his, that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain which he cannot lose. Do you know what verse he put right after that quote? The words of Jesus in Luke 16, 9, where he says that when things fail, you may still be received into the eternal dwellings. Jim Elliot's mind 
was fixated on heaven. He had an eternal perspective. And it was that forward-looking faith, not only a backward-resting faith, not mere gratitude, but hopeful faith which motivated him to do what he did. Faith doesn't let us turn back. Well, thirdly and lastly, how does this faith impact our future? I don't think it gets any better than what we see here in verse 16. It makes it undeniably secure that we will belong to God and dwell with him forever. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And Abraham's desire for what was to come a faith that that embraced the promises of God from afar. We we know that God counted Abraham as righteous. The, The books of Romans and Galatians make that absolutely clear. By faith alone in the Messiah, we, like Abraham before us, are counted as righteous, even though we still sin and stumble. But from God's judgment, Everyone who is in Christ, our our sins have have been dealt with in him, and, and his righteousness has been credited, as it were, to our account. But it's not just our sins that have been securely dealt with. No, it's also our future. We're not just forgiven. We're also adopted into God's family, and we can actually look forward to being forever more with him, citizens in the eternal kingdom where God is preparing a city for us. What did Jesus mean when he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you? He meant that he was going to prepare a way for us, sinners, and unable to come into God's holy presence ourselves. He was going to prepare a way for us to enter into the presence of that glory. And it'd be through himself, wouldn't it? Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. This is why Jesus can tell his disciples, and he tells us in John 14, to not let our hearts be troubled. Don't be anxious about your future. Why? Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, guess what? I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. Friends, for those who have put their faith in Jesus and are looking forward to Jesus, that promise is for you. Do you believe it? Is it true? Look at the way God responds to this kind of faith. Those who desire a better country to come, look at the connection in verse 16. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Oh, that we would let this verse speak to us. Abraham, who had a habit of being ashamed, ashamed of calling his um, uh, wife his wife, often saying, oh, no, she's just my sister. Isaac, who was ashamed of his own son because, you know, well, he couldn't hunt. He wasn't manly enough. Jacob, who was ashamed of his own fears and constantly avoided confrontation. All of these broken, sinful men longed for God and by faith clung to the gracious promises held out for them in the new heavens and the new earth. And God was not ashamed to be called their God. God was the creator of the heavens and the earth. God is the sovereign God who allows every particle to lie where it lies. And God was most pleased to reveal himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What's interesting is that the, uh, 
the wickedest of the three. Jacob is the one that God loves to say he's the God of the most. God is not ashamed to be called the God of Stephen. He's not ashamed to be called the God of Israel, Felix, or Mike, Chris, or Kevin Hammett. He knows us. He knows your name, and he's your God. And the point of verse 16 is that God takes pleasure in identifying himself with us as we in faith identify ourselves with him. What magnificent, beautiful grace. But friends, we need to be clear. The text says he's not ashamed to be called their God. That he's preparing a city for them. Who is the them in this text? Is it everybody? No, it's a promise held out only for those who by faith truly desire that heavenly city to come. It's only for those who believe in and long for the king of that better heavenly country to come. We need to be reminded that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. No, it's only those who do the will of our Father who is in heaven. Jesus says in Matthew 7, that on the last day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then Jesus, perhaps speaking the most frightening words in all of scripture, says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There will come a day, friends, when God will make known publicly and finally which people are his and which people really aren't. But until that day comes, Jesus' instructions are clear. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses and forfeits his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and ashamed of my words, says Jesus, Of him will I be ashamed when I come in glory and the glory of the Father and with the holy angels. And here's the point, friends. Living by faith now, embracing all of life from an eternal perspective now, allows you to not only not be ashamed of Christ, but actually is the means by which we grow to enjoy Jesus Christ, growing in our anticipation and our excitement at the sure reality of seeing him soon when he comes to take us home to be with him. That's faith, and we hold on to that promise. Have you ever read C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, the last book in the Chronicles of Narnia series? There at the very end, after the final battle against evil is won and, and, and evil is defeated, the unicorn in that book speaks out, almost echoing Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16, and sums up what everyone in the book had been thinking. He stamped his right forefoot on the ground and he neighed and then he cried, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. And the reason we love the old Narnia is because sometimes it looked just a little bit like this one. Oh, can we cry out with excitement like that? Do the things that we enjoy here make us say, oh, how much better it's going to be there? Or are we so in love with this world that that's where our eyes go to? Looking forward to that real and better country to come, that's the end of our faith. 
Lewis ends that book in this way, allowing us, the readers, to just glimpse into the unimaginable beauty that what's to come. He says, as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, that is Aslan, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and and so beautiful that I can't even write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily, happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the greatest story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Oh, we get to look forward to not just a better Narnia, but a better country, a new heavens and a new earth, where that reality is ours. Let's pray.